0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, uh, how are you all? I hope you're well. Thank you very much for picking out this podcast to be a little distraction from the world. My name is George Ezra, I will be your host for this evening's entertainment. And in this compilation episode, uh, we'll be wrapping up series 1, 2 and the kind of bonus series 3. It's time to revel in some of the extraordinary stories that my guests have shared. For that reason, this episode is George Ezra and Friends' Legendary Tales. Oh, yeah. I recorded an episode with Ed Sheeran, and he said, yeah, with me, I don't drink on the record until it goes platinum. And I was like, yeah, Ed, mate, that's like a week for you. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. (laughs) Take a few days off drinking. That's crazy, yeah, like, take
1: four days off drinking. It doesn't work like that. He said it, and I was
0: just like, at that time, I just was like, oh, yeah, cool. And then I was leaving, and I was like, what are you talking about? Love him, you gotta love him. Ah, oh, Ed Sheeran. He comes up once or twice in this compilation with good reason, as this is all about legendary tales. What it's like to hang out with some of the true icons of music. It's. I'm smiling just recording this because it is just exciting. And to discovering what success really means, you know, and hopefully sharing some wisdom along the way. Just a heads up, there will be some swearing in this episode. Now, when when you're talking legends, I felt a bit starstruck sitting down with Sir Tom Jones. You know, I just really felt like an honour to be sat there and to have the time to hear his stories. It really did. And, you know, my time with Tom Jones, my mate Tom, um is probably nothing compared to some of the people that he's hung out with along the way. Um, and yes, a disclaimer, this story does involve Elvis Presley. I mean, come on.
2: So 65, I went to LA and then from there, because you, when you do a show like that, you're there for the week. You know, you go in on the Monday and you, you rehearse for the week and you do the show live on a Sunday. So you got that week there, and uh, so I thought, well, let's pop to Vegas and see what it's like, which I did in '65, and I thought, wow, you know, this uh, it was only small then, you know, it wasn't wasn't very big, but they had those hotels um, with these showrooms, which was the equivalent would be the talk of the town in London, which was the Hippodrome, you know, it was was like that. It was a, a show, big showroom, and I thought, wow, you know, I could. I could do this, you know what I mean, I went to see some, some shows in Vegas and um, so I liked it then.
0: Was it always a hedonistic place, like, was it always kind of on the fringe of, because now it feels like the place you go to where certain things you can get away with that you can't in other hmm. states and things like that.
2: Well you know, see, gambling and, and the 24 hour uh, liquor law, you know that, that, that goes 24 hours a day. Well I don't think I've ever been in a, in a city that has a, a drinking, a liquor law that goes 24 hours a day, you know, especially then.
0: <laughs> but it, it was, was the same th- then?
2: Oh yeah. Oh wow. Nevada, you know, so they had gambling and uh, shows. You know, you'd have the, the main showrooms would be twice a night, 8 and 12. Then you'd have these lounges that would go on through the night, <laughs> you know that uh, so if you if you weren't careful you know you, you could be up 24 hours yeah <laughs> so 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 that was it so I thought wow this is this this is great yeah, I could do it a bit of this <laughs> so then in 68 they they um, they offered me um, to go to the Flamingo Hotel uh, in Las Vegas I'd have a residency I yeah. try it you know it was a three year signed a three-year contract one month per year so which I did meanwhile my TV show came out you see because that was in 68 69 the tv show hit so the tv show must have helped the vegas oh tremendous so then uh, the flamingo wasn't big enough then the showroom wasn't wasn't big enough so they moved me to the international which was then by this time 1970 and 69 uh, or 70 or and elvis opened it and uh, no sorry barbara streisand opened it because elvis was frightened to go in first because the sound might not be right he said oh
0: no way so he wanted someone,
2: to, yeah, someone up. to go in so Barbara Streisand did and he went second and I went third so into the International which was part of uh, of the Hilton operation you know which was the Flamingo was part of it so they had me for three years anyway so um, I did 68 and 69 of the Flamingo then moved to the International for 1970 and then Caesar's Palace came knocking so I went there Seventy-one, and and then I used to do a month a year, you know, in in Las Vegas, and so did Elvis Presley. So you know. when did you first meet Elvis? Sixty-five. Uh, okay, so when, so much happened in nineteen sixty-five. Oh, tr- unbelievable! That first year was unbelievable for me. Yeah, there I was in September sixty-five. And it's just that thing. Once it starts going, it's yep. a
0: snowball effect. It's, yeah. You know.
2: So I went to do, again, you know, the Ed Sullivan Show, moving to L.A., because it went color. Mm. So while I was there doing the Ed Sullivan Show, they said, Elvis is at Paramount Studios and would like to meet you. So, wow. Yeah. Elvis Presley wants to meet me. So I, I went to, to, to meet him. And he said, how do you sing like that? <laughs> and I said, well, you partly to blame. you know, <laughs> yeah. stick to you. And... Uh, so, so that was it, and he had, I had three singles out at the time. It's Not Unusual, What's New Pussycat, and With These Hands. And he had the three. He said, i bought the th- your three records. And he was singing With These Hands when he was walking towards me on this set, this film set, and I had the ballad out called With These Hands, and he was doing it. With These Hands, and I thought, my God, here comes Elvis Presley walking towards me singing my song.
0: What was, I don't want to go too far down this tangent, but what was he like in person? Was he the same as, you know, what I see as Elvis was Mm -hmm. the real thing? Oh, yeah.
2: Right. Elvis Presley was Elvis Presley. He lived that, you know. I mean, he had these guys around him, and when he spoke, everybody shut up. You know what I mean? He made a statement. Yeah. And uh, you'd have to listen. And that was it. But then he'd laugh. You know, he'd say something serious, and then he would, then he would laugh. But he he created, I think, because he was uh, so big, and uh, Parker wanted to hold him away from things. Uh, he put a price tag on him, you know, and uh, he didn't want him to do anything unless you he got paid. Mm. So uh, he created his own world. You know, with, with these guys around him that, uh, that he could trust. You know, and they would play football, American football, mm. you know, five a side or something. But it's you know.
0: important to have those people that you trust around uh, him, Yeah, especially exactly.
2: for someone like Elvis. That's right. But then when he started to f- go down, you know, drug the drug situation, pills mostly, I think, they then tried to help him, tried to stop him, and he fired a lot of them.
0: Uh, because
2: he wouldn't then... He wanted to be, yes, Elvis, no Elvis, you know what I mean? Yeah, when yeah. they were going along with him, when everything was great, when he was right in the crest of a, of a wave, you know, and it was Elvis Presley and Coca-Cola, I mean, that was like America, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, then the Beatles came, you know, and, and sort of sort of started to shake him up a bit. But uh, that's, that's how it was. So he created his own life. Elvis, you
0: know? I can't even imagine. In fact, where I'm sat recording this now, I have a picture of Elvis on the wall, but not a life that wasn't without difficulty. And I think we're all familiar. We all know the stories of success that don't end well. I think it's like a you know a mix of lifestyles that kind of get out of control, and um, you know you know expectations that people put on themselves and and fame. That's it, isn't it? And fame. That often doesn't end well, and and I think now if we can bring in Ed Sheeran's perspective here, don't get me wrong, dear listener, don't get me wrong. We all know, we all know how successful he's been, but there's been so much hard work to get there, and that's true, you know, of anyone in any walk of life that has experienced some sort of success. There will, there will have been a lot of hard work, and the icons that he wants to emulate and not who you might expect. That's my point here. Listen to this clip. The thing I'm always most inspired and impressed uh, about yourself is your work ethic. Like, Mm. it's just relentless and love for it. It's not, it's... The reason I started the podcast was because there comes a point when you realise no matter what it is people do musically, it takes a... Base level amount of work and love to maintain it. Yeah, yeah you know.
3: Well, I, th- I do think like, I, are you aware of Foy Vance? Yes. So Foy's, I think I think my favorite artist ever. Like Foy is like everything I love in an artist, and I've had the pleasure of getting to know him and writing with him. And he's signed to the imprint that I was given. And what I've learned about him is he's like the most talented singer and the most talented songwriter and the most talented performer that I think I've seen but he's like so cool with not doing like not having like a huge success he's so cool with like hanging out in the highlands with his daughter and making pasta that's his thing that he wants to do and it really made it really makes me see that like Talent is, like, such a small percentage of why people have success. And I spoke to an um, uh, example about this, because he said to me, he was like, look, mate, I'm not, like, the best singer in the world, but I can work harder than the best singer in the world, and that's, that's what I have to offer. So I do believe that persistence and the work ethic is actually what drives you to the point that you want to be. And wh- when I got into the industry, my first album came out when uh, Adele's 21 came out, like, and she's your competition, and you're like, fucking hell, like... I'm not better than Adele, but I, everyone at the record label was like, James Blunt became massive because he fucking worked harder than everyone else, so I was like, get me his diary from the Back to Bedroom year and we'll do all of that times two. And so we basically did everything we could. I was go- I played on fucking Hollyoaks. Randomly enough, uh, <laughs> uh, fucking when I <laughs> met Paul McCartney, he said, I saw you on Hollyoaks. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes these things, you know...
0: God, Mac out outing himself as a Hollyoaks. Wait, isn't it? That's weird, isn't it?
3: Crazy. Uh but no, but like I I was doing all the things that other artists were thinking were uncool. I I would make sure I would do just because they were. I was doing something. So I'd go and do like tween programs or teen programs or like late night shows in Germany that no one fucking watched just because it was something to do. My argument for it was like, you know, there was a lot of people that were like, oh, this show isn't cool, but I was like, but I think my song is. You know, if I'm playing it on that then like no, it's not like i'm it's not like i'm selling out musically i'm just performing on a show that people don't necessarily think is cool but if people watch that then they might like the song
0: but there's also this thing i remember on there was a point on this record divide where i woke up and went to my local supermarket just before I'd left i had watched uh the red nose day video you did with corrupt fm <laughs> but then i got there and it was either okay or hello and you're on the cover of that yeah now anyone watching corrupt fm ...doesn't buy OK or Hello, yeah. so therefore doesn't know that that exists. Anyone that's buying that probably do- isn't aware. Do that, yeah. It doesn't matter. Like, it, people only know about the sources they go to. But
3: people, do, but the weird thing is it does matter for some people, you know? there's like, There was a a singer that I came up with, and I remember him being, like, pissed off that he had really young teenage fans screaming at his gigs. And yeah,
0: but do you know what? I'm going to just... I don't know who that is, but fuck that. Fuck. Yeah. What are you... Who are you to decide who it is is turning up to your gigs and, and whether you're better than that or not. It's not that's not a thing.
3: Yeah. I've never been cool. I've never ever been considered cool. I've never been critically loved. There's never I've never been 10 stars on Pitchfork or whatever or had like enemy skinny jeans people coming to my gig. Like I I've never been cool but I love what I do. I really really love and I love the music I make and I I don't know why you'd care what other people think about that.
0: As someone that's as career-driven as you are, what then is the next step?
3: Well, that's the thing that... That's the thing I've been sort of thinking about a lot. Because I I feel like it's dangerous to have a career that goes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and everything's happening because at some point it's going to drop. And I'm very much in the belief that you can control your own destiny and I'm not going to allow myself to... Full, so I'm I might just step down if that makes sense I might the next record next record that I'm making is like not a pop album and the reason it's not a pop album is people expect you to come and they, the next album they're gonna be like well it has to be bigger than shape of you and it has to sell more than this it has to do that and I'm like well if I put, if I control it and I'm like here's a lo fi record that I really fucking love my fans are gonna be like yay and the pop world are going to be like, oh, well, maybe the next one. And then on the next album. So if I go from, because Plus has done like 10 million, multiply's done like 15, Divide should do about 17, 18. And if the next one does two or one or like 500,000, it's not a failure because I've made an album that I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to get there. So it's not a failure. No one's going to be like, that's a flop. It's just that that's what he wants to do. And then if I have an album that does around that and then the next records does, like, a little bit better, then suddenly you're a success again, you know? You, you, you control your thing. I, I, the whole my whole career I've, like, studied Coldplay, Coldplay are fucking geniuses, and they did it with Ghost Stories. They, they went bigger, 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 bigger Ghost Stories, and then when they came out with Head Full of Dreams after Ghost Stories, it was suddenly like, oh, shit, the pop album's back again. Oh, they're, so, oh, they're doing so well. But Ghost Stories was their artistic moment, if you can say that, where they just brought it back down. And, you know, Ghost Stories probably did, like, half the amount of the album before but no one was like oh that, that they fell from grace because they controlled it you know so I think that's for, for me that's definitely the next step because it's as as you said There's it's so big at the moment that the only way is down you can't get you can't get bigger than that the only way is down so why not control the fall you know why not why, why not, not fall and just be like oh cool, well for this album I'm going to do this and then the next record after then I can go back and make a big pop song and do, do like that so that's definitely what i'm more and the label hate that the label really fucking hate that because obviously they want they want a big pop album again but i think i think that that shit's dangerous if you listen to all your favorite artists or you look at you look at the graph of james taylor's career and it's like so jiggy jiggity jaggedy i'm making it where is it but just like it's zigzags it's zigzags it's not constantly getting bigger. It's just, like, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes... Or, like, Paul Paul Simon, before he did Graceland, there were, like, loads of albums that, you know... He had did. a really
0: hard time of it, didn't he? Yeah,
3: but like, but, like, that's my point. But if you control it, that's the fucking genius thing.
0: So there you go, control, yeah? Hey, it's a tricky thing to hold on to, or, you know, or to get right in the first place. And really, you know often you're not that in in control of your own musical destiny there's so many things around you the world around you you know Uh, and sometimes it takes people around you to be that they can see what you can't Um, as was the case with Emily Evis you know do you like that segue um who co-runs the Glastonbury festival with her dad Michael and what they saw in a relatively new band it just sounds funny to say, but what they saw in Coldplay back in 2002, ladies and gentlemen.
4: We have, like, all these incredible artists coming in from all over the world. And, you know, it, it's like it's like somebody described it to me recently as the Christmas of music. You yeah, know? that's better and than
0: the kind of... World Cup, the Christmas <laughs> yeah. of music. That's a much better analogy.
4: But it, it feels like that. It's like, you know, there's just... Yeah, there's all kinds of artists on yeah. the bell and amazing, like, legendary American kind of icons and, like, coming to play in you know, a Saturday yeah, afternoon. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're like, oh, that's amazing. So, actually, the whole thing makes sense when you see it in
0: yeah. one Have you ever on had, and you don't need to say any names in particular, but that initial thought of mine of, like, oh, what, what if that particular artist thinks it's too early to headline in their own mind. Have you ever had artists early on in their career turn that down?
4: Coldplay nearly did. Really? They said yes. They did what you were saying, say yes. Straight away, Chris was like, yep, we're going to do it. And then they were like, I don't think we can do this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't got enough songs. We haven't got enough Yeah. Yeah, and, um, And Phil rang up. Their manager, Phil, rang and said, look, I don't think... You know, it was so nice of you to offer, but we really, I don't think we can do it this time. We're, we're going to have to wait until we're ready. We, we you know, wait until we've got a second album. And, you know, if we're lucky enough, we'll be asked back. And it was really, like, really politely done. But we were going, no, you can't
0: <laughs> yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: You've got to do it now. Yeah. Come on, you can totally do this. And, um, and so they did, they did change their mind. But it was like a persuasion. Oh,
0: Almost. Do you know what? When you asked right at the beginning if there was any standout moments, I remember. I remember Coldplay one year headlining, and lighting the pyramid, but from the outside, so Uh, the whole thing. And I remember being like, "That is amazing." That's cool. Yeah, I love that. Something um, that I know of yourself is this kind of the fight to have equal representation for men and women in music. Do you feel the responsibility? To be waving that flag, outside of it just being innate in, in you to want to fly that flag. Is there something when you're putting the lineup together where you go, "Do you know what? I've just looked at what we've put together quite naturally, and I feel we're missing, you know, X kind of acts.
4: Yeah, it's a huge um, responsibility and something that is really important to me. But also, like I'm not, I'm <coughs> not. Um, you know, I'm going to do what's right as well for the lineup. You know, for the festival. So I'm, I'm kind of like I want, I want as many females on the bills we can can, we can get. It would be great if we could be fifty-fifty. Um, I didn't sign up to the key change campaign about fifty-fifty because I don't think it's realistic for us to be to pledge to make a pledge. But also, I am doing that anyway. So I'm kind of trying to address it. Um, but it is, it's quite tricky, um, certainly on the pyramid because. They're just, the pool of women is not as big.
0: That issue of the pool not being big enough is an issue outside of your control. That's Exactly.
4: A, it's kind of radio a rs mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it, it's broader than just the yeah. festival yeah. booking.
5: I knew that I wanted to speak to the soul of a million strangers, and I always kept that as my credo. That was my motto. I want to write songs for this person that can get out there and talk to a lot of people. So you have to consider the entire marketplace. Hmm, what, what group are they trying to connect with? How do I connect with their fan base? Is it a legit fan base or is it one that we now have to make from scratch? Um, Sister Sledge, we had to make that from scratch fine with us because we knew that we had some kind of fan base and we knew where those people lived. just give them another song give them more music like that um when i met in excess it was like i met them and i just loved them as musicians um i didn't hear any hit songs but i liked them as musicians so then when we got into the studio and we did original sin it was like hey dude let's change this to this and change this to that and because we want to speak to the soul of a million strangers. That was right after I had just done David Bowie's "Let's Stance. I mean, like, right after. And then I did the Reflex with uh, Duran Duran, and basically I remade the Reflex. Um, and they said would I remix it? I was like, I don't know how to remix. I'm not a mixer. Mm. Uh, I'm a writer. I'll rewrite it. (laughs) (laughs) You can call it whatever you want to call it.
0: That was Niall Rogers, another legend in himself, of course, who's worked and he's elevated so many other musicians and he continues to do so. He's very proactive and, you know, he, he loves it. It was just amazing to chat with Nam, And also, Olton John, who's up next. And both these legends show how important it is to remain curious and adaptable. And I think you see that in bands and artists that stand the test of time. You see in them an ability to kind of put things on their heads and, and try new things out. And maybe that's, maybe that's a big part of longevity.
6: Who knows? Here we go. There's been so many different sections in my life, you know, the career, the football, the AIDS Foundation, the collection, you know, you know I, I'm, a, I'm a kind of an open book in a way because I, I, I really live life on a grand scale. Yeah. Well, you just touched on the, the
0: adjustment of, in 1990, going from using to not, and yeah. did you find that that, well, of course, but what effect did that have on your writing? Um, was
6: it like a fallow period of you having to? I didn't write, I did two, a whole year off, which I'd never had done in my life. Mm-hmm. I just got concentrated on getting sober. Um, and I met a lot of new friends and I, and, and the first gig I did after, when I came back was at the Grosvenor House or a charity thing. I was absolutely petrified, and, um, but it was fine. And then the first album I made was the one I think after I came back and I was uh, really nervous, but it, the process remained the same. So I mean, it all fitted back into place, whether or not the songs were as good as people, but I wrote The Lion King after that. So it's, yeah, there's been a lot of good stuff in the sobriety yeah, period. Absolutely. But the heyday, you know, y- you have a heyday and then you have the rest and the heyday can never be replaced.
0: Are you able to pinpoint when the heyday was?
6: Yeah, from 70 to 76, that was the heyday. And then after that, I had the common sense to know, hey, this isn't gonna, I'm not going i am not going to have another one record every time, straight away. Mm-hmm. I'd studied the charts enough, I knew the business enough to know that my records would find the level that they were at, um, but because I was good playing live, I knew that my career would last, um, and everything else was down to someone else, I knew someone else would take over, it's, it's cyclical, you know, if someone has three or four years of not being able to do any, you know, Ed will go through that, and then people will get, get you know, he'll have to find, mm. and I've talked to him about that. I said, you know, well, there will come a time when this won't happen all the time. Um, and uh, you have to be, accept that. And to be honest, you know, it's a relief. Mm. It's a huge relief because the expectation on every record, when Michael Jackson said after Thriller sold like 60 million copies that the next one was going to be twice as big, I went, you fucking idiot. I mean, that's placing so much pressure on yourself. And if the next album sells 25 million, it will be considered a flop. And yeah. it's like it's like a Morris Morissette. She sold God knows how many... Rec- I've, I keep coming back to her, because I think the record company completely ruined her career with taking so many singles from Jagged Little Pill. which sold so many copies. And then the next album, maybe sold 6 or 7 million, it must con- consider the failure. And that and is so wrong. people
0: would bite your hand off for 6 or 7 yeah, million. Yeah, it's like,
6: no, it's not a failure, but you can't live up to that. And it's like... N- you move on. You, it's like there was an article in, in The Guardian about Lord, um, who's made two albums. She's at the start, a bit like you. She's at the start of her career. First album she made when she was 16. Amazing record. Just blew me away. And she's, there was an article about her not selling out in America. Well, she's been put into 15,000, 16,000 big arenas. And she's mm. been selling 8,000 tickets, which for her second album is not bad at all. But she shouldn't be playing 18,000. No. She be, should be playing theatres like The Beacon mm. and leaving tickets, people wanting tickets. And making so them beautifully. Making them the them. next one. You have to build that career. And you just. You know, That's short sightedness on the management's behalf. Mm. And it's putting a lot of pressure on her. Because it's really dismaying. I, I, it's never happened to me. But to sit, go out there and see a lot of empty seats is the most. Dis- oh it it must be so dispiriting to see nobody in the balcony just Mm. everyone on the floor and that's the way a career should be handled she should if i was handling her she would be playing theaters and just selling out straight away and leaving people wanting more Mm. and then the next time you play to eight thousand 000 and it's like that's the way you do it that's obviously what you're doing Mm. don't you know don't you, you could probably do a show at the nec if you wanted to but you haven't right
0: no, and we're kind of the next tour we're doing of the UK, the biggest gig of my life to date. Will be the O2? Be Wembley Arena.
6: Wembley Arena, I love Wembley
0: Arena. Yeah, I've never done it, and it kind it's
6: of... I prefer it to the O2 mm. so much. It's a great little place to play, bl- not little place, but it's 13, 14,000 people, and it's, it's, I love playing
0: there. Yeah. If I had That's it my way... So,
6: it's so good to do that, yeah. that you're doing it sensibly. If you had it your way, what?
0: I'd have a residency at Brixton Academy,
6: <laughs> yeah, the biggest <bricks laughs> of the You like? But I've those, never that, played
0: those bricks size together. venues where it's kind yeah, of is like. Is
6: three
0: thousand, right? Five, and five. it's like it feels bigger than a theatre, but still like you're you're reaching out to everyone. But
6: if I, you know, my idea of doing shows when I come off the road is to do what Kate Bush did and play three weeks at the event Yeah, amazing. That would be my ideal thing. Brilliant. Because you can be in one place, you can put on and not do the hits, do something completely different. If I had, if I came back to do a show and I just did the same thing again that I've been doing, I would kill myself. Mm. I want to expose some of the great songs that we've written that haven't been hits and people don't know as well, interspersed with a couple of classic, but play somewhere like that. I saw her show there when she came back and did the three weeks, and it was was an occasion. It was great, the right amount of people. I don't really want to, you know, do the eighteen thousand people mm. again. It, the next thing I'm thinking about that it, when I do do a show, it will be a residency at somewhere like that. Oh, I've never played the Brixton Academy. Maybe it's the Brixton Academy. It's a
0: beautiful venue. Yeah. It smells a bit. Eh? But it smells a bit. But <laughs> I don't <care> about that is heaven. Oh man, you know what? I wouldn't give to be performing at Brixton or anywhere, anywhere with a crowd. You know, I'll wait, of course and we'll be back together. Now, Giles Martin is a producer who came with the legacy of his dad. So his dad was George Martin, um, who is and forever will be associated with The Beatles. But what I loved hearing from Giles was that, you know, that competitive edge that many musicians have and they need it to push on with a career in the industry. Just a lot of us just don't often admit that. And, and I struggle with that in myself. I don't think I'm a competitive person. I really don't actually, as I say that out loud. Um, but I do recognize it in others and I don't recognize it as a negative thing necessarily. That's just an observation. I see it in others around me.
7: As an artist, you, you, you need to be competitive and all of the, you know, If 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 you know, I would say to you, you need to be more. You need to be cutthroat and competitive. And it's not everything's artists these hippie guys. But all the people I work with, it's you know Paul McCartney or Pete Townsend or or you know younger artists. They have this one thing in common. It's like they want to take over the world, (laughs) and people don't realize that. Someone like the Beatles, their primary concern, and my father's included, was to sell records. That was their pri. It wasn't to make great music yes they made great music but they thought that would help them sell records yeah, yeah. you know I, it surprised me when I got to know them and, and got to work on their, on their material it's the thing that surprised me most is how competitive they are with current artists as well yeah, yeah. It's, not question of, it's not a question of you know. oh my god it's a question of I want to beat you Wow, it's and it, that's the way it is. It's, 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 it's not touch of fear. but it, you need to be like that to survive. You know? yeah. And it's not a bad thing. I know it's not a bad thing if you're not me. If you're, if you, you, if, you can't sabotage some, burn someone's drives. But you know, but there, it's it's quite a good because it does stem creativity. And in in their case, and lots of other bands' cases, you know, you know something like you know, Sergeant Pepper mm. wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. They like had who? Pet Sounds. Yeah. They relaxed, and then. Dark Side of the Moon wouldn't have happened without Sgt. Pepper
0: and it's all it's a chain and, and everything's so that's like
7: and it's not a question of I'm inspired by this album it's like let's make a better album than this <laughs> let's
0: do that but better yeah that's the thing yeah,
7: yeah, as an artist you need to you need to be doing that because actually that that will make you write better songs
0: mm, I remember when I first started to meet record labels and that was you know something I could entertain in my life that someone was like do you do covers then and I was like no I, I've never really done covers yeah and they were like, "You should, because you need to learn how other people have written. How are you going to write songs if you haven't learned other people's?" And that was a, uh, you know, God, I don't know if I took that advice on though.
7: Yeah, it's. I think. I think there's a balance there. I think it's a good thing, but you need to make sure you don't start writing other people's songs. Yeah, absolutely. You need to be. Um, um, I can't imagine Bob Dylan. Mind you, I bet. And mind you, I bet he knows Woody Guthrie's catalog oh, off mate. by
0: heart. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's. It's also that thing of. Keeping an ear, I remember I had one lecturer uh, that I I did a year at university, right? And um, he said, who who in here listens to the charts? Who here listens to Radio 1? And there was like a scattering of hands. He was like, you all should be. What are you doing here? You're learning about pop music from the 50s onwards. Why are you not listening to today's pop music? I mean, here's the thing. You know,
7: Paul McCartney's 70, 75 now, I think. Elton John's 70. And having know, know both of them, both of them, every week, get all current music played to them.
0: I know, and Elton still gets stuff sent to him, doesn't yeah. he? Which so does, is amazing. So does
7: Paul, every, every week. Every week, he knows whatever's in the charts. Which and, is and just... These, and so these it doesn't matter whether you think they're old and old or whatever, but the fact of is, is they're two of the most successful songwriters ever, and they still have that drive. And don't think they're doing it this now. They've been doing that for the last 50 years. And that's interesting.
0: It's not just interesting it's it's a kick up the arse yeah, it's it's like a, come on it's, mate what are you doing it's absolutely and
7: and that's and that's the thing you have to pay attention to because that's how you that's yeah. how you that's
0: how you do it that's how you have a long successful career uh, Now next guys someone who I have every confidence and no doubt in my mind is only at the start of her long and successful career as an artist is Sigrid and Sitting down with her, I I could be wrong, but I think we were in Liverpool backstage. She's just been doing it her way from day one. It was very inspiring to sit down with her. Here you go. When I was doing small amounts of research for today, I was like watching interviews that you'd done and stuff. Oh, wow. And, um,. (laughs) Yeah, get me. (laughs) Stalking. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I like it. Uh,
0: Thank you. And there was one uh, interview you did with The Enemy and you were at a festival. Mm. I don't know which festival. I think it's Reading, in fact. And you mentioned in that interview that that morning you had had to wake up at 4 a.m. to get to site. But you say it with a smile on your face and it's kind of like... The reason I started this podcast is because there was a point when I realised anybody... That's touring and performing and releasing music mm. has to love it. And they're, they're like, they're all, whether you like what they do or not, mm. everyone's committed to these crazy mm. commitments.
8: You've got to respect people for that, yeah. no matter if you like the music yeah, or not. Yeah,
0: exactly that. Even in this interview, you've spoken about how you, initially you managed yourself, and at the age of 17, 18, you're coming over to London five, you know. <laughs> it's all crazy. What do you think your drive is? And wow. it, like, what
8: that's the first time someone asked me that. Outside my family, I think.
0: I'm not questioning No, your, but, but No, like, and it's
8: a good way, that's... No, it, it's cool to be asked that. Um... My drive... Okay, Wow. Well, this is gonna be really cheesy. Please stop me if it's too bad. And for the listeners, please forgive me, but... If you think about life as a really big, chaotic, weird thing, why the hell are we even down here sometimes that's just a bit you know when you look at yourself you know i i remember i had that growing up like looking at my fingers like isn't it a bit weird (laughs) that my brain and my feelings are connected to this body and when i think i want to do get my arm behind that if i want to throw a ball it just happens how weird isn't that how weird isn't I it? I was that. inside my mom, and now I'm out here.
0: I think everyone listening will, yeah. you know, relate you to that.
8: that. and you look at yourself in the mirror sometimes, like, you are a human being. This, you know what I mean? I look
0: at myself and I have the exact same thing, and I think, who the fuck are you? Like, what is going on? Yes. What, like,
8: the meaning of life yeah. in a way, and I think the drive. Mm. If I can stay busy with having big ambitions. Mm. For my career, also have fun whilst doing it. I'm not, I'm not that crazy. Like, yeah. uh, just ambitions, but kind of makes me a bit more calm about yeah. doing this little thing called life. Show yeah. me. It's calming in some way, yeah. and I think it's fun working. But I can't work all the time. I know that, and that's in an, that's a balance I'm still trying to find. Is that. I can't say yes to everything, and I feel so bad whenever I have to say no to stuff. It's really hard for me, but I know it's important and I'm just doing the best for, my, for myself and the whole team by saying mm-hmm. no to things when I've had enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd like, Maybe I still haven't found that balance, and I essentially had touched different. on it earlier. I just mm-hmm. go, go, go until I burn out, and it's really not the clever way of doing it. But yeah, that's a perfect answer. You are listening to George Ezra and Friends' Legendary Tales. From what I can tell, a life in music brings a lot, you know, it brings so much. And as I'm looking back on this in 2020, there's just so much to be grateful for. And I I really mean that, you know. I've spoken about, do you know what, I've spoken about mental health. Over the last few years, and I've, I've spoken about it in depth on other podcasts, and especially a weekly podcast that I have with a dear friend of mine, lovely young man, Ollie MN. It's called Phone a Friend, that podcast, and we just phone each other up to check in, you know, and catch up. We reminisce. It's funny, isn't it? You'd say to someone it's a show about mental health, and I think that's a bit like. I don't know, the fact is that does put some people off, but it's as if the the, the mental health aspect of the show is promoted in every word that we say as we talk to each other. It's just the notion of picking up the phone and talking to people that you know and love. That's a big help, you know? And it's not, it won't solve everything, but in my experience, it's done me the world of good. And I hope it offers some you know, shared hope. ...about how to get things through things... ...and I hope you can enjoy it... ...and just check it out... ...is what I'd like to say... ...uh yeah... ...phone a friend with George Ezra and Ollie MN... ...give it a go... ...and and the reason... ...you know that... It ...was an apt point there... ...for me to mention that podcast... ...was because I was so grateful... ...for Hannah Reed ...from London Grammar... ...and my time with Hannah... ...because she... ...you know started to talk to me... ...very eloquently... ...and honestly about her experiences and she was just honest about the impact of long touring and being away from home you know we've all had that this year we're away from the ones we love and how much we rely on a a support network And, and it's easy to take that for granted I think just trying to find your way in a very strange world of being on the road and yeah thank you Hannah I think you're a legend.
9: Uh, it was two and a half years. Just relentless. By the time, by the time, I mean, we had like a, we had a gap in between um, just before the very last tour, because we had had to reschedule a whole bunch of stuff. But so it was, it was two years, but two and a half years, including then the sort of added American tour that we had had to move.
0: Two and a half years is proper.
9: It was. I mean, it was amazing. Like, of course, it's the best thing that could ever have happened to us. Um, But, yeah, we were really young at the time and we got pretty tired at the end and uh, we did have to cancel stuff because I had, like, muscular sort of damage in my voice and stuff like that. And me and Dan in particular have quite bad stage fright. I'm the worst. Dan, bless him, he's... he's, he's, I mean, he's much better than me, but he has it a bit too. Um, And so it got to a point where suddenly I just kind of... Basically, I didn't get on a plane that I was meant to get on. and um, Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's quite it's quite the story.
0: So, wait, you were supposed to get on a plane?
9: Yeah. You didn't just, show? I just didn't show up, yeah. Yeah, but I had... Um, I mean, basically, f- for me, I mean, poor Dan and Dot, what they've had to put up with over the years, I just can't even imagine. I've always been quite a nervous sort of introverted person, as artists just tend to be, I think, really, um, or often are, anyway. The... The stage fright got to me loads at the beginning because I'd, I'd never really gotten up in front of lots of people mm. um, ever, really, in my life. And then I kind of started to get used to it. I got better and better, but the crowds got bigger and bigger. And then suddenly I just kind of hit this wall and I su- suddenly got worse and worse and worse. And the worse the anxiety got, the more exhausted I became. And then I started to lose my voice.
0: I had read... About your anxiety on tour. Mm, yeah. And I found it really interesting. In my life, I'd never really felt anxiety until mm. we finished touring. I think that it feels to me people are more willing to talk about it. I really appreciated reading what you had mm. spoken about it, but I didn't. It, what was different to me was the fact that you had been feeling it whilst on tour. Do you think it was part induced just by the lack of escape from it, or you're just go, 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 go?
9: It is really interesting. I would say the one thing about the music industry is like, I am, um, so I watched the Whitney Houston documentary and the Amy Winehouse documentary years ago. I was amazed. If you watch those two documentaries back to back, they are exactly the same story. It's like a blueprint, it's, it's nuts. And in those documentaries you can see, there are like a few sort of threads that can lead to a perfect storm. And it's, it is kind of difficult to talk about because it is easy to sound like you're ungrateful for the opportunity and the gift that you've been given because you're not like a junior doctor, you know, like saving lives in the NHS. Like, we're so lucky to do what we do. But there must be a reason why artists so frequently end up being substance abusers or, you know, worse and then end up dead. And we've lost so many amazing artists to it. I think I experienced a couple of those threads that kind of led to a perfect storm in a way. But I I always decided to be teetotal basically on tour because there's just no I can't really drink a couple of glasses of wine even and then sing well the next day, which kind of served to my benefit in the long run, I think. But um, I think for me, the first thread was this really weird adrenaline thing where
5: Mm.
9: it doesn't matter whether I was in a positive mindset or a negative one. It was purely physiological is that the surge every single night that my body would just release to go and do it was just so, so big that then either you can go out and drink or you go back to your hotel room and I was awake until like five or six o'clock in the morning. Wow. Sometimes, just because I was just completely, completely wired. And then you have to wake up the next day and fly somewhere else and, and then you have to do it all over again. And apparently um, your body can then become addicted to adrenaline.
0: I believe that. And you should know, I would not have guessed you were someone that suffered from stage anxiety or fights at all. And
9: that is what everyone says.
0: Yeah, you know, you're not here for me to tell you to do this, but, you know, just for us to check in on our friends and ask how each other's doing. I think it's a brilliant thing to do. And often, you know, talking to Ollie Alexander from years and years, I got to talk to him about how inspiring I'd found him and and a decision he'd made. He'd made a documentary that I'd watched about his life before we'd met. And I just, yeah, I, I found it very useful that he had recorded that documentary. Look, we talk about it here. Check it out. See what you think. One thing that I really remember, and I, when I say that, what I remember is a really blurred memory, mm. but I remember being at home, it was the festival season of 2014, I want to say, but it could have been 15, and you were on Radio 1 talking about, this is where it's blurred, because I know you've gone on to talk about it at length since, uh. in different things, but about your experience with bullying. Uh. And it was one of the first times I think I'd heard one of my peers or someone like using their platform for good in that way. Wow. Because if you think about... I'm not, I'm not suggesting that other people don't do things that are good, but I, it was the first time I'd heard it, just naturally I had the radio on. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, even at the time, you know, what's the demographic of Radio 1? It's young people. And how important it is for them to hear somebody that they probably, it's so easy for them to go, oh, this person that's got it made, you know, mm. they're doing this, they're doing that. Yeah, it really stuck out to me as something that was a brilliant thing to be doing. And I know you still do it. Oh, but sure. how, was that, it takes a running jump to even talk to the people you know and love yeah. about anything going on. <clears throat> to, to make the decision to do it publicly, was that something that took a while to get used to the idea of doing that?
10: Well, thanks, George, for a lovely, lovely um, (laughs) comment.
0: Um, It sort of happens by degrees,
10: I think, you know? Like, as in, I never really... don't remember ever having a time where I was like, and now I'm going to talk about this. Uh Um, I sort of just... I realised that... Well, I guess two things. On the one hand, you know, I've... um, You know, I've lived my own life through the kind of lens of my own personal experiences and and my own personal mental health right like I've had to get really good at kind of managing my own mental health in order to survive really and so part of what I've learned over the years was um you know sharing it was a really it's really hard and you just said it's so hard to talk to anybody about Mm. what had the way you're feeling and I still find that hard but I think I'd learned that doing that is a good thing you know like it's always good to um, if you can, be, share what you're going through and be open and, and, and try and be honest about what you're feeling. And I guess I applied that to just the sort of the time that the, the crazy time that I was having and being interviewed all the time and being on stages and, and suddenly finding myself being asked questions where, you know, if I was talking about my time at school, like it's just... It, wouldn't make sense. I don't know. I can't imagine not saying that I was bullied because actually it was like a really big part of my school life, you know. And so it just kind of came out and I didn't really think too much about it, I guess. And but then at the same time, I was seeing um, how we were starting to gain fans. Right. And like that's the first time, you know, ever have, you know, people who show up and want to listen to you. And I was seeing what they were responding to. And like they would come up to me and say like, oh, I just, you know, I get really get this from your music or thank you for this song and the lyrics mean so much to me. And they would tell me what they were going through and they were struggling and stuff. And, and I'd be like, oh, me too. Like, I, I'm, I'm the same. And then I realised that we were kind of both sort of helping each other out in that mm-hmm. exchange. And I was like, well, this is, feels really good. And, like, I know so many of these people who come to our shows now, like, could maybe benefit from this kind of exchange happening. So, like, I'll just keep doing it. Do you know what I mean? So it kind of just, like, it, it just kind of escalated in a way. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I think also that if you weren't to... But the amount of interviews you end up doing, when something like that is a huge part of your life, you'd end up lying to cover it up. That's exactly, yeah. Because... I don't want to deal with the
1: lies. No, I and don't
0: once ha- you tell one lie in life, it just spirals. More, and you more lies. Before you know it, you have to, you know, lie more and more to prop that initial lie up.
10: Totally, too much. I would have too much anxiety to, to try, <laughs> yeah. even to try an attempt like that. That's why I sometimes think I get. I'm a bit. I don't know. Sometimes I have maybe been overly honest in some instances. Do you feel
0: that? Do you feel like sometimes uh, actually?
10: Well, I th- I, th- I think yeah because sometimes you know my I'll have upset someone in my family and I wouldn't have known. But I wouldn't have known like you know for instance that like someone in my family may have read something where I talked about something that's affected them as well, you know, and I, and once that had happened, I was really like, okay, I need to be careful about what I'm saying, you know, like other people's lives are involved, not just mine. And that made me feel um, like maybe I, you know, I had a bit of a sliding doors moment where I was like, I wonder if I just never said anything about my private life <laughs> yeah. and personal life. Would, would, th- would this have sort of happened? But you can't really think like that. And um, I kind of overreacted in the moment. I was like, oh God, you know, but it was actually fine, and um, it's, I I think I'm really, I'm happy to have shared what I have, and, you know, I think I'm still figuring out what it
0: all means, obviously, like life, Mm. like everybody else. Yeah, so we're all still figuring it out, I get that, and maybe we always will be, you know, and anything that I've found difficult in life is, without the added, anxiety and stress of having children you know and to help navigate them through all of this and, and here is Lily Allen um, she talks about how her children have found it growing up with a parent who is famous, yeah have a listen.
11: They are aware, they're, they're getting more aware of it. They've definitely, like, been in the dark. You know, they're, they're five and six, so they don't really have, like, a concept of fame. And um, they know that Mummy's a singer, that she goes to the studio to sing songs, and now they're like, now she's on the stage, you know? Um, but... <laughs> 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 Are you going, going well on the stage tonight, Mummy? <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. Who's going to look after us? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the next question. <laughs> Alright, like, Grandma... Yeah. Um, no, and uh, yeah, so they they do they've got this concept now of like fame though because my oldest daughter said that you know some kids in school like wanted to be friends with her like in the girls in the top year
0: because, because
11: of. you know that one of their mums had told them that Ethel's mum was famous. Um, so there's that now to contend with, but and that's sort of fine and and expected. Um, but I have to kind of like be quite curt with them, like, I just don't want them, like, getting sort of, like, delusions do of you f- grandeur, you know?
0: Yeah, do you find yourself dumbing it down, almost, like... The- well, they,
11: they're they always, like, you know... Well, also, it's weird, because, like, I don't really know what's going on myself, you know? So it's like, they'll be like, Mummy, are you famous? And I'll be like, well, I definitely was. <laughs> 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 At one point. Yes. Um, and they're like, what does that mean? And Fame's like, a funny <laughs> word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by the time you're old enough to appreciate yeah. it, it'll all be gone. Yeah. Um, no, they're... They um, but they yeah, and now they're sort of like playing with it. So, like, we we went to the um, the food market the other day, which is like this outdoor market near where we live on a Saturday and on a Sunday, even. We were just sort of like wandering around, and it's quite busy. and Ethel just went, Lily Allen. Really loudly, oh, god. <laughs> and everyone turned around, and I was just like, oh, "This is horrendous." But it was funny because it was like that role reversal thing that like, you know when kids are meant to be like embarrassed of their parents yeah, when you yeah, go out yeah, shopping, yeah. and you're like, you know, Ethel, come back here, and they're like, "Ooh, stupid mum." But it was like totally the other way around, and I'm like, "Oh my god, get me a table Am I <laughs> <to Yeah>. me? <laughs> immediately." <laughs>
0: That's really funny.
11: <laughs> um, So she's definitely like figuring out like what that means and how to use it best for probably to her abilities. Okay. Which is um, and she knows that it's got her some like pretty cool friends at school and she knows that she can make people turn around at the market but beyond that she hasn't quite figured (laughs) it out. (laughs)
0: Now you could say that One Direction were barely out of childhood themselves when global pop stardom struck. Global pop stardom struck, ladies and gentlemen. Um, So I wanted to know from Niall how it was to have Fame land on you at such a young age. I don't know if he found it a frustrating, an annoying question, I don't know, but he seemed very open to me and it's amazing how people take this in their stride, I think. You know, um, check it out. here we go.
12: you've got this uh, Id- like idea of what you think pop music looks like, and I guess I suppose Bieber at the time would have been like a year or two ahead of us, okay, so we, you know you kinda like is this what he's got? you know you like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know you're looking at it like that, and then you're trying to like fuel the fire a touch, and then uh it just kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger, and yeah it's it's. It's kind of, when you look back at it, it's kind of a, it's a hard one to figure out because no one ever seen it coming. We were like, oh, I'll probably be big in the UK or <laughs> if even, or <laughs> I, I don't know. You know what I mean? And then you find yourself at, at you know, the, the Rose Bowl or I don't know, like.
0: It's Madison Square Garden. Yeah, no, things like, like that. this. It's, it's
12: just like, I can't even, can't, can't even describe it. And I've had some of these moments on this run of my mm. own record where I've got to play. Places that we never got to play in the band, and
0: are you talking more like more like beautiful theatres? Yeah, yeah. I got like to play. I
12: played Red Rocks, for instance. Oh
0: mate. I've never done. That. I yeah. would love to do See, that.
12: See, this is the one I'm talking about. I wanted to play Red Rocks. I seen 1986 or seven, I think it was, uh, under the uh, Red Blood Sky by U2 was a an, a an, a vinyl that came out, and they had a documentary, a live gig on it, and I remember seeing that when I was like 10, and I was like. And I said this on stage when I was in when I was on Red Rocks. I was like, I don't know where that is. I don't know what it is, but it looks unbelievable. Looks a bit like the Flintstones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I want to go there. Yeah. And uh, and then I was like, when I was standing on stage, I was like, we're here. I was like, I told my agent, I was like, when we go on tour, I want to play the Ryman in Nashville.
0: Did you do that? Yeah, I was oh, at, at last
12: year. And I and I want to play Red Rocks if we can sell it out because there's a lot of people. But um, yeah, I got to play some really cool. And there are, the, there are the moments where you're like, yeah. yes. Yeah, man. Like, but literally, also, literally like, a, like, I've made it moments. Yeah, so You, yeah. like, fist pump yourself. But it's
0: amazing how, th- like, this many years into your career, you can still be having I made it moments. Yeah. And also, you can... It's moments like that as well, I feel that it's like a payoff for all the hard work. It's like, mm. oh, and now I'm doing the dream gig. Yeah, know?
12: yeah. I think, like, people will have this thing where... I guess we all don't have to be as big as Ed or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? We're not. You know what I mean? I think we're, that's a failure if you're not as 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 big as Ed. Uh, I mean, Ed's the king. Yeah. And like, you know, we all go and watch his shows and he's the greatest guy and I've known him since I was, you know, since the very start. But uh, it's great to be like on the, at this, like on our level here and still, you know, have these moments where you get to pick, you know, enjoy a theatre and, yeah. you know, I've been, personally, I've been lucky enough to do the stadiums and it's and it's amazing. But, we went straight from The X Factor to Arenas, effectively. Well, this was my,
0: my thing of, like... My only thing about The X Factor was exactly that. You miss out on the... I don't know, trying your hand at an open mic or going mm. supporting whoever and whatever. Mm-hmm. And now you're getting to do that. Yeah. You're, get, you're, you're getting to play the bars and the theatres. and It's almost as if it's Benjamin Button. Like, yeah, I a little mean, bit, yeah. But, but I think also what I feel is that there's this notion that every record has to beat the last. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And if it doesn't, then that's not successful. And I think that's really unhealthy because yeah. I, I guess as an artist, if you're happy with what you've written and recorded, yeah. that's that's the the heart of it, you know? Yeah, exactly. If like, if
12: you're sitting there going, that verse is not good enough, or it's not as good as the verse on the last song on the last mm-hmm. album, you're, you're going to ruin it for yourself, and you're not going to... I think this is why it takes some like people nearly like a couple of years to write albums these days because they're worried about that, that exact thing. But there's plenty of artists from back in the day who probably went two or three albums of crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one album that stood out <laughs> yeah. made their career. But they were away. able to do that, yeah.
0: you know? I, I can't remember who it was. I think it was, I was talking to someone about R.E.M. recently, and I think it was their eighth studio album that had a, like a commercial hit on it. And in this... If you signed a record deal and you didn't have one on your first album, yeah, you'd be gone. like, I'm oh, sorry, mate, you, it's
12: not happening. Do you know what I mean? You're dropped. CLA. Yeah. No, it is, it's a it's a fickle it's a fickle world. But well, I guess we have to move with the times as well. And, and but you know, the way I kinda look at it is and I kinda I've been kinda saying it to the label, like, if I just say if I disappear for a year and go write an album and the label's wanting you to bring something out in three or four months time, if they come back and the music is good then the time that I went missing for it is non-existent.
0: It doesn't matter. You know, like Adele. Adele will disappear for three years. She will come back. Do you remember that Hello, that she on had the X Factor. X Factor? Yeah. I was watching, right? Yeah. I, was like, <sighs> I know, and I remember the screen going black, and I just hello, and I was like, who's that? <laughs> What's this? I remember texting someone saying, is Adele releasing music? It was so exciting, and you're right. That had been through. I'm not years. saying we're
12: all Adele, but the <laughs> the, the ideology behind it is yeah. that if the music's good enough, when you come back, then you know all that time is non-existent. Yeah. But I'm not saying that we should just be taking our time on purpose. I've got a lot of
0: respect for now, and as we wrap up all these legendary tales of survival, if you like survival tales in the music industry, I wanted to end where we started which was with Sam Smith who has gained this beautiful I think perspective yeah and I will be more than happy to swim by Sam if I ever I need flowers yeah all that's left to say before we roll out with this this story or this perspective sorry this clip from Sam is thank you very much for being here with me and listening to these episodes I promise There's nothing I would love more than to get another series of this podcast together. I'm kind of reluctant at the moment to do it over video calls, just because in my experience, to be sat in the room with somebody, you know, it's a really beautiful thing. Even if just on a selfish level, you know, I love it. And, you know, I hope you're all well. I hope you're all looking after yourselves and each other. Thank you for listening to this, and hopefully see you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Now I'm in the run of this, I love it, but it's... I've started to really... When I brought out this record, when, before we did Two Good, Good Goodbyes, I went back to all my first venues, I played in every city. So we did, like, the Mercury Lounge in New York, and then we did the Troubadour in L.A. Amazing. And it was... That I loved. I love looking into people's eyes. It's scary. It's much scarier for me, but I I feel like um, just me and a piano is kind of where I prefer... Okay. To be nowadays, and
0: is that how you write, you and Daniel yes. Piano?
1: My my aim in life is to just slowly, slowly become this old, gay folk singer that just wears kaftans and smokes weed and has a beard and Amazing. just sings lonely love songs. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, mate, I'm so behind that. <laughs> That's my aim. I love. I'm. I just love those gigs. Yeah, it's they're special. It's funny as well because you
0: you have to rely on yourself a lot more to be able to hold conversation between the songs because oh, gotcha. you really can't rely on and here's the drum fill into the next song exactly. or here's, you have rehearsed. to go and this da, 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 yeah i am um, i love telling stories on stage and i always do it on tour and i know which songs have you know stories that lend themselves Um, I'm rubbish at doing it on the night like Mm -hmm. hey Birmingham you'll never guess what I saw at the shopping centre or whatever (laughs) relatable (laughs) me too me too
1: it's uh, it's tough I even find it tough talking on these shows sometimes because it's you've got to your voice has got to travel to everyone and you've got to have a lot of confidence but it's but I don't have a lot of confidence sometimes, so I'm pretending. Yeah. <laughs> but then I'm trying not to be fake when I'm pretending to have confidence. <laughs> 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 so it's a bit strange. I've been thinking recently. I, I want to. I want to get into something. I'm doing. am doing a lot. I'm trying. I'm trying to do a, a lot of charity work with War Child and stuff. But I think I want to open a flower shop. Amazing! <laughs> I did not
0: think you were going to say that. <laughs> no, I really I do. Lot of charity. Where would you open it? I really do. London.
1: Flowers make me happy.
0: Yeah.
1: Man. I don't know where I'd open it, but I just want to open up a flower shop that has Always a a coffee shop that has a flower shop in the in back. There, man.
0: If I've learned one thing about business, I have a coffee shop in there. I have this amazing <laughs>
1: idea. It's great. I've even got like a logo idea and everything. Amazing. It's really cool. But I want like, a coffee shop, and then you go in the back room. And there's like a greenhouse, and it's a it's a florist. And, like, when I just have downtime, I'll go and work in the florist. That'd be amazing. I might, I'm going to go on a florist course, I think, though, first.